Today is lesson five on our attributes of God. Uh, just a little bit of review before we start. Um, in lesson two, we looked at God's aseity, and that's where God is ah say. He's of himself and from himself, free from any need or dependence. He's self-contained and can't be limited by anything outside of himself. Then in lesson three, we looked at the doctrine of divine simplicity. And that's where we learned that God is absolutely and perfectly one, that God cannot be divided or separated in any way. He's not made of parts that are more fundamental than his essence or outside of his divine being. And then last week we looked at uh, the attribute of uh, God being eternal and omnipresent. And there we learned that God's infinity in relation to time and space means that God is timeless, ageless, and ubiquitous, always existing and never changing. So with that in mind, let's open in prayer. Oh God, we come to you in prayer, you who never change and never sleep, asking that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning that you would be glorified as we talk about your many perfections. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is the fourth on my list of God's incommunicable attributes. And incommunicable means they're not shared with us. They're, they're those attributes which give us a distinction between God and his creation. So today the fourth on my list is, and this is number one on your handout, God is immutable. The word immutable comes from the Latin word immutabilis. M means not. Immutabilis means immutable or changing. So the immutability of God means that he never changes in his being, his attributes, his plans, or his promises. His promises. He cannot diminish, deteriorate, or regress because then he would no longer be God. Whatever God is, he has always been and always will be. He doesn't change his mind or overrule one decree with another. He does not make a promise and then change his mind. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines God as spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So you will often see the word unchangeable in place of the word immutable. So to say that God is immutable is to say that he never differs from himself, that he is incapable of change in his nature, character, will, or happiness. So the concept of a growing or developing God is not found in the Bible. So God can't change for the better. Since he's perfectly holy, for example, he's never been less holy than he is now, and never can be holier than here he is and always has been. Neither can God change for the worse. Any deterioration with the unspeakably holy nature of God is impossible. So the uh, attribute of God's immutability is a doctrine that can be deduced by using what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls good and necessary consequence but the motivation for this attribute is not primarily logical because there's just such strong scriptural report support for God's immutability. So let's look at the logic 
angle first. And given all that we've studied and said about God so far, and these lessons are kind of like building a wall. You know, we're, we're using terms in this lesson that we've learned in previous lessons. So if you haven't uh, been able to uh, attend or view previous lessons, it's, it's helpful to understand what we're talking about today. So given everything that we've said so far, it makes sense logically that there can be no change in the character of God or within the divine essence. And we saw that in the attribute of a seity, how God differs from his creatures in being self-existent and self-sufficient and independent and needs nothing outside of himself. This is number two in your handout. Aseity says that God's existence and well-being is not dependent. It's not dependent or contingent upon any being or circumstance. He is the final and primary cause of all things. If God could be changed, it would have to be from something more powerful and outside of God in order to be who he is in being. Were that the case, God would not be God. And then in lesson three, when we studied the doctrine of divine simplicity, and this is number three on your handout, if God is whatever he has, as the doctrine of simplicity states, that he is simple without parts and indivisible, then it does not make sense to say that God can undergo a change of any kind. For example, if we suggest that God gains knowledge from our future, then knowledge becomes a part of God that is capable of growing and learning. This would wrongly make him depend on his fullness of being on that which is not God. That's what the doctrine of divine simplicity is. When we talked about what is God made of? God stuff, Godness. For him to rely on anything outside of that is not possible since God is not composed of parts. He's not composed of inactive potential. Potential is what enables change, and since there is none in God, he doesn't change in his knowing, willing, and loving, etc. He doesn't move from one state of being to the next. So, dude, don't split the essence. You're going to hear me whenever we talk about someone trying to divide the, simple, the essence, the simple essence of God. I'm going to say, dude, don't split the essence. And then in last week in our study of God's eternal being, we saw that for God, there is no past or future, but only a simple present where he, sings, where he sees all things, past, present, and future at once. And this is number four in your handout. For us, change occurs when comparing states of something between two periods of time. And since past, present, and future do not exist as such, in God's timeless now, there are not two periods of time, time to compare God's state to. Since God exists infinitely outside of time and space, he is not subject to their influence. He is perfect before all ages and after all ages. He is what he always was, and he will be what he always will be. God is. And here's a, a cool quote from Herman Bavinck. He says, Immutability is what it means for God to be God. He is eternal, necessary, free from all composition, and devoid of potentiality. He is pure act, pure form, unadulterated essence. 
If God were not immutable, he would not be God. Those who predicate any change whatsoever of God, whether with respect to his essence, knowledge, or will, diminish all of his attributes, his independence, simplicity, eternity, omniscience, and omnipotence. This robs God of his divine nature and Christianity of its firm foundation and assured comfort. <clears throat> this is number five on your handout. God is absolutely immutable in his essence, attributes, plans, and purposes. He can neither increase nor decrease. He is subject to no process of development or, or of self-evolution. His knowledge and power can never be greater or less. He can never be wiser or holier or more righteous or more merciful than he ever has been and ever must be. Because he is immutable in his plans and purposes, there can no, be no failure in their accomplishment. In their accomplishment. So complete and perfect in himself from eternity to eternity, God has no potential that is not already fully realized. He doesn't exist in a competitive relationship with created human beings, so he doesn't have to limit himself to make room for us. God cannot be more infinite, loving, or holy tomorrow than today. And if God alone is necessary and independent of all external conditions, fully realized in all his perfection, then there is literally nothing for God to become. For us, change might be better or worse, but for a perfect God, change could only yield imperfection. J.I. Packer says, God exists forever. He is always the same. He does not grow older. His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers, nor lose those he once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. And now, as I said, and this is number six on your handout, there is very strong scriptural support for the perfection. For the perfect, these are perfections that we're talking about. They're a little more than attributes. The perfection of God's in immutability. It's clearly taught, for example, in James 1.17, which says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Or Matthew 24, 35, which says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Or Malachi 3, 6, which says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, or children of Jacob, are not consumed. And you have, you know, Hebrews 10, 23, 2 Timothy 2, 13, Psalm 119, 89 to 92, Psalm 13, 11. So, um, as we saw in our discussion last week of God's eternity and omnipresence, there's always a tension between the Bible's description of God's being, who he is ad intra, internally among the Trinity, and his doing, his doing is ad extra, is how his actions are reported in his creation in Scripture. Michael Horton describes this as the distinction between God's hidden essence 
his transcendence ad intra. Okay, and don't, don't forget, we're learning a little Trinitarian grammar here, so when I say ad intra, that means it actually comes from opera ad intra, which means God, works of God internally, just God in himself. Ad extra means, opera ad extra means works of God in relation to outside, externally, ad extra. Okay, so this is, the, it, it's just a helpful way to learn to talk or even to question someone when they make a statement. Do you mean ad intra or ad extra? It's, it's, it's helpful. So Horton uh, describes this distinction between God's hidden essence, his transcendence, ad intra, and his accommodated revelation using cre creature language. I'm going to say that a lot. He uses creature language in his relation to us. Uh, and that means his imminence, ad extra, okay, external. Michael Horton continues to say, there are some texts which seem to imply that God can change his mind, but they are massively overruled by texts that declare that God is immutable in his being and knowledge. And this is number seven on your handout. The relational changes, the relational changes in God in some texts are actually changes not in him at all, but in creation. And for example, we could say that God is unchangeably angry with sin and God is unchangeably pleased by righteousness. So when a sinner with whom God is angry repents and by faith is united to Christ and covered in Christ's righteousness, God is now pleased with him. God did not change, the sinner did. It might appear to us as if a change in God occurred in his actions toward us when we come to faith in Christ, but God transcends time. So he doesn't have to be updated as to what is happening in history and then change his plan. Therefore, there is no change in God. He loves us from eternity. This is number eight on your handout. God's immutable love is not contingent or dependent upon his creation or what created beings do. Okay? Because his love is as eternal as he is himself. This is shown in Ephesians 1, 4 to 10, which says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, let's talk about literary devices. And we've talked a little bit about these, but just a little bit of review. You know, we have uh, in Scripture metaphors like God is a rock, okay? That's a good metaphor. 
Or we have anthropomorphisms attributing human characteristics like hands, like no one can snatch us out of God's hands. And then we talked about anthropopathisms. That's where attributing human emotions to God, such as fear, okay? And that's in, there's an example of that in Deuteronomy 32, 27. Hervin Bavink says, Scripture necessarily speaks of God in anthropomorphic language. Yet, however anthropomorphic its language, it at the same time prohibits us from positing any change in God himself. There is, a ch there is change around, about, and outside of him, and there is change in people's relations to him, but there is no change in God himself. This doctrine of immutability is directly at odds with the incorrect belief that the Old Testament God was a God of justice and wrath, whereas the New Testament God is a God of love and mercy. And this is, is this number nine or ten on your hand? Number nine. God is the same throughout eternity. Progressive revelation in Scripture is the gradual unveiling of the developing purposes from our perspective of an unchanging God, not the gradual revealing of the developing character of an evolving God. Okay? So when you look at prog progressive revelation, it looks like this, you know? If this is time going forward, God's revelation is progressive. We learn a little more and more about God until Scripture's closed. Okay? Old Testament, New Testament. Same God. We really don't even learn about the Trinity, really, until here. So God is revealing himself progressively. This is number 10 on your handout. Those passages which speak of God changing his mind or repenting, for example, in Genesis 6:6, 6, 6, where he repented of creating man, or in 1 Samuel 15. 10 to 11, where he repented, repented of making Saul king. Or in Jeremiah 18, 18, 10, where he's going to repent for destroying a nation, which repents. Or in Jonah 3, 10, where he repents about destroying Nineveh. Those passages must be interpreted in harmony, in harmony with the rest of Scripture. And this is done by recognizing their literary character, okay? Their literary character in the use of metaphors, anthropomorphisms, and anthropopathisms. These are literary devices. The biblical passages in which God appears to repent or change his mind are almost always narratives. Okay, that's their literary quality. They're narratives that deal with his threats of judgment and punishment. And these threats are then usually followed by the repentance of the people or by the intercessory petitions of their leaders. And we've looked at some of these, like, for example, in Lesson 1 and 2 uh, of this series, we looked at Genesis 6-6, and we talked about how it says that God grieved, and we talked about how um, that's just an anthropomorphism, okay? Well, let's look at another narrative today. Uh, let's... Consider uh, the following episode that took place in the time of Moses, Exodus 32, 10 to 14. And this is called a narrative portion of Scripture because it describes an event. 
And this event is the making of the golden calf. Starting in verse 10, it says, God says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. He's talking to Moses. Then Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of your earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. And I will give your offspring Give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And in verse 14, And the Lord relented. He relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So, God relented. Other translations say God changed his mind. So this narrative seems to say that God does, in fact, change his mind from time to time. Well, let's look at it. Uh, a passage, passages of a different literary quality. Let's, let's see what didactic teaching says, okay? Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And the same concept is repeated in 1 Samuel 15, 29, which says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that she should have regret. So is this a contradiction in Scripture? How are we to understand this? And this is number 11 on your handout. We should understand that narrative Scripture, narrative Scripture often reports things like the way Moses saw them, from his perspective and point of view in Exodus 32. As they appear to Moses, not necessarily as they really are, as shown in didactic teaching, scripture like Numbers 23:19. So if we took the discussion between Moses and God in Exodus 32 and pressed the apparent meaning to the ultimate, what might it teach us about God? Not only would we think that God relented, but we would think he relented because Moses showed God a more excellent way. So could God be corrected by a fallible creature? No. If understood incorrectly, we might think that Moses was astute enough to see the, follow, the folly of this decision, and he persuaded the short-sighted deity to come up with a better plan. And even to talk like this is to border on blasphemy. That God could be corrected by Moses or any other creature is utterly unthinkable. Yet some, incorrectly, think that this is the implication of this narrative. There are many in the evangelical community who would support such an interpretation. So, in that Exodus 32, um, God's hot burning wrath over Israel is shown here is not 
the anger and sorrow that comes from making an error, the anthropopathism of hot burning wrath is used in order to emphasize the strength of God's disgust over Israel's sin. I almost have to use an anthropopathism to describe the anthropopathism. God is eternal and has foreordained whatever comes to pass, accomplishing all His holy will. Therefore, God's relenting, as it were, and I wish the Bible used that, as it were. If you've never used, as it were, I'm going to teach you how to use it right now. If someone says, God's relenting, as it were, they're saying, metaphor alert, I don't really mean literally. I'm using a literary device, okay? As it were means, as if it were so, or so to speak. So, that's a word picture, okay? Uh, you might use, you might apply an anthropopathism to a physical object, like you might say, we put our boats in the river, but the river was angry that day. Rivers don't get angry, okay? But it's communication, okay? It's a literary device, word pictures. So therefore, God's relenting, as it were, is not an undergoing or a happening to God, but from Moses' perspective in time, it is a reversal of actions. But it was, it was all decreed by God in eternity. It doesn't mean that God changed his mind the way we change our minds. It doesn't mean that God was caught off guard or surprised. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake that he wished he hadn't made. And this is number 12 on your handout. In this narrative, Exodus 32, 10 to 14, God is not talked into changing his mind. Out of his graciousness, God uses Moses' intercessory prayer as an element of his will and purpose to show his grace. The effectiveness of that prayer is shown in characterizing God by the human term, relenting. But God knows and has always known the future perfectly, having planned it according to his unalterable decree. Decree. Okay, we're going to talk more about decrees in future lessons. He always acts in the way that he planned to act from eternity past. While men do not know how God will act and are sometimes astonished to see his sovereign plans unfold, God is never surprised. He continues to work as he always has, according to his eternal purpose and good pleasure. This is number 13 on your handout. God's self-revelation speaks in creature language in many Bible stories. But we have to remember that these liter literary devices still tell us something. In God's hands, anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms are revelation. They are revelation. They tell us something. But the point is, is that we, if we don't recognize that these are accommodations to our finite brains, then we'll end up thinking about God in ways that He is explicitly forbidden us to elsewhere in Scripture. Any questions so far? Pardon me? Revelation. No questions? Man, I'm a good teacher. Okay. You know, and we have a perfect metaphor sitting right here beside us. You know, this body and blood, okay? 
It's metaphor. It's or a synecdoche or something like that. We know that his bo- God uses pictures to communicate. Okay? And and he does communicate effectively, but we just have to be careful. Okay, let's talk about immutability in regards to Christ. First, let's affirm that God's being, his essence, his nature is immutable. The Father is immutable, the Son is immutable, and the Holy Spirit is unable, immutable. Yet there are not three immutables, but one immutable. Okay, that's the doctrine of simplicity. So, what about the incarnation of Jesus? Well, the incarnation is not God becoming man as a caterpillar becomes a butterfly or as milk becomes cheese or wood becomes ash or a boy becomes a man. Flesh did not become God, nor did God become flesh by a real actual change of his nature. And we talked a lot about this last week, okay? The two natures were united in the hypostatic union, but the Godhead was still the same. Dude, don't split the essence. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, immaculate and immutable in his perfection, takes on human nature and so humbles himself to be our mediator and friend. The Son of God became what he wasn't, while never ceasing to be what he was, the second person of the Trinity. Okay? It could be objected to, and it is, that if Jesus is God, then God changes because Jesus became a man. This is number 14 in your handout. The incarnation was a miracle of addition, not subtraction. We talked a lot about that last week. The Son took on humanity. He did not divest himself of deity. There was no change in God. Assuming flesh, a human nature, does not mean relinquishing deity or splitting the essence as the heretical kenosis theory teaches that we talked a little bit about last week. Hebrews 1, 10 to 12 says regarding Jesus, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So if you remember last week when we talked about the communication of properties, the communication of um, the divine nature and the human nature, um, The communication of property says whatever you can say about either nature of Christ can be said about the person of Christ, but what can be said about the divine nature cannot be said about the human nature. This is number 15 on your handout. What Christ did add extra. Okay? And your first clue about add extra is when I use the term Christ. If we're talking about pre-incarnation, usually we use words like the Son, okay? When we say Christ, we're talking ad extra in time of creation, in time of sin. Um, What Christ did ad extra, he did as a single person in the union of two natures, the union of two natures. Christ's divine nature did not change when he added a human nature. The human nature is subject to change, even death but the divine nature is not. 
God the Son does not change in his essential divine being. The humanity of Jesus only exists in union to the divine Son. Jesus' human nature did really change. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He learned obedience and was made perfect. Jesus, according to his divinity, possesses infinite joy. But while on earth, he was a man of sorrows, says Isaiah 53.3. So, if God is not immutable, then Jesus could not be fully God, okay? In becoming man, the Son had to remain perfectly God in the fullness of his perfection as God. And because his divine person is perfect and infinite, the merit of his suffering according to his human nature can be infinitely applied to all those he's chosen to save. And this, the incarnation, is the central fact of Christianity and all of history. Anybody have any questions about any of that? Yes. So, so you would say that Jesus and his humanity was mutable. Yes. Obviously because he was a baby, grew, and yeah. he learned things like learned Correct. obedience. Correct. So is he still mutable in heaven now? He's still a man. Will he, because I think we in heaven will continue to learn we continue to be mutable. Does Jesus? Gosh, Keith, to leave it to you to ask the uh, stump the teacher question. <laughs> uh, or was that something look, the, that was part of his humiliation? The infinite came in union with the finite. And I would say that as we speak, the human nature is still finite. I I've ne have never really thought, and I'll do some research, about um, his state of bodily existence in heaven as we speak does does he continue to change i would kind of think not tim do you have any well, glorified it is glorified yeah so good question keith um any other questions on the incarnation yes leah Well, in thinking about Keith's question, my question to that then becomes, do we continue to change? Because in understanding a glorified humanity, like, I feel like that might help us understand that. Like, are we going to continue to change in heaven? Because once we get our glorified bodies, I mean, body-wise, like, we're done, right? We're not going to continue Well, we know that we won't sin anymore. Right. Um, but but we, we will like still learn. You know, we are still going to... You know, one of the things that people talk about, man, when we get to heaven, we're going to be sitting right there looking God in the face, okay, Jesus. And we're going to learn so much, and we'll never, con we'll never quit learning. We'll be active. So I, I would say that to some degree, even though we're glorified as Jesus is, um, we will still not be, inf we are not going to be like God. Okay, so, okay, let's, let's switch gears. So, what about prayer? Does God answer prayer, and does prayer change things? Yes. 
And while it's true that prayer changes things, the question is exactly what does it really change? Does it work to change the mindset of those who pray? Or does it actually change the mind of God concerning His will? This is number 16 on your handout. Nowhere in the Bible is the Christian encouraged to pray so that God would change His will. Quite the opposite is the case. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Or Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Okay? Or Ephesians 1.11, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. So God graciously uses believers as vessels, vessels participating in carrying out His will, as we saw in Exodus 32, in Moses' intercessory prayer. Whatever is His will, He does. And clearly, God's plans are immutable, and there are no earthly interests, decision makers, or counselors that can persuade God to turn away from His divinely ordained purpose and will. This is 17. If we pray for a blessing and we receive it, it's not that we altered the course of things that God had determined. It's that we were blessed to pray for what was always the purpose of God to do. So we are not the vessels that God guide God's hands or that change His mind. The, pur the purpose of prayer is not as a means for us to change the counsel of God, but as a means of communion that God might change us. Uh, Isaiah 40, 13 asks rhetorically, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or who, or being His counselor, has taught Him? It doesn't require an answer, but the answer is no one. This is number 18 on your handout. Well, son might ask, well, what is the use of praying to a God whose will is already fixed? And the answer is, because God requires it. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is 19 on your handout. We pray because not only is God transforming us in prayer, but they are the tools that God uses to get His work done. Whether God intends that work of prayer to be in us or in others for whom we pray, He ordained prayer to be the vessel of changing things, but not His plans. Prayer does not cause any change in God, but is offered to God to bring about those things that God has determined eternally determined to give us only as a result of prayer. Um, and if God is mutable, we can't pray a prayer of adoration like this. The Lord is my rock, as it were. My fortress, as it were. I'm going to quit saying that, but you see how as it were is used. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. If God is mutable, you can't, you can't pray that prayer. Let's talk about a little bit about bad theology regarding immutability. And let me start with Arminianism. 
And if you don't know what that is, come and ask me after the service. Arminians are Christians who say that God is not sovereign in salvation. If we make God dependent upon creation for anything at all, then we sacrifice the perfections of divine aseity and immutability on the altar of human freedom. Clearly, if God receives anything from his creation that is not already completely in himself, he is not assay from himself or self-sufficient. Similarly, if God learns something from creation, if, for example, he perceives faith and then elects based on it, then he's clearly not omniscient and immutable. The love of God cannot be certain if it's grounded on a type of love where we first love him. God's decisions are not dependent on the actions of man. And then we've talked about open theism quite a bit during the course of this lesson. And according to open theism, God processes or evolves. And by the way, it's, it's made an impact. It's very postmodern, okay? Um, they say that God processes or evolves with the world he created. And therefore, he moves through time with the rest of us. They say there's no reason to take passages about God changing his mind to figures of speech because God did relent. He's, God's kind of lost. He's just about as lost as we are. They say the future is open and God does not even know. Open theism says we pray, he reacts. We pull the strings, God does a little jig in response. And here we see man in an increasing effort to elevate himself has lowered God to lessen the gap between the creator and creation. And another error, and we talked a lot about this last week, is the uh, heretical canonicism. So, no, Jesus did not divest himself of his divine attributes in the incarnation. And we need to be careful that when we think, this is number 20 on your handout, we need to be careful that when we think of God as immutable, we shouldn't think of him as inactive inactive or completely unfeeling, inert or static like a blob. There is a difference between immutability and immobility. We don't declare God immobile, we declare him unstoppable. God tells us in his word that he who keeps Israel will ne never slumber nor sleep. His character and his plans are unchanging, yet he does not simply sit back to watch those perfect plans unfold. No, he's working constantly in his imminence within creation to bring his unchanging plans into be being. And in closing, what does that mean for us that our God is immutable? What's the cash value, as it were, of this doctrine? And I'd say the biggest benefit to us is, the Im is that an immutable God is the one who can be trusted that his plans and promises are kept with certainty. And this is number 24 in your handout. Scripture tells us that if we've taken refuge in God, his immutability gives us strong encouragement to hold on to what is promised to us. Because our God is unchanging in his being, his attributes, his plans, and his promises, the hope we have is an anchor of the soul, hope both sure and steadfast. And as the church passes through great trials and temptations, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we are in Christ, 
then God's love for us is unchanging, unchanging. In realizing this, we can say, as Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. Any questions? Yes, Bob? Let's get a microphone. Let's get a microphone over there. We talked about the glorified body of, of Jesus, yet I, I've always looked forward to being having a glorified body in heaven and to me that meant having a body that was not um, encumbered by the kinds of things that happen to our bodies in this life and yet Jesus body clearly showed the nail marks in his hands and feet and so Looks, it's not an either or, I don't think, but it, but I, it's hard for me to reconcile that in my mind. And my glorified body's still going to be messed up like this one that I'm in right now. Yeah, <laughs> I hope not. No, all tears will be wiped away, as it were. Right. And um, we will have a glorified body too, and we will no longer sin. Um, we are not going to become infinite, though. I mean, we, are, we will still be finite creatures. You know, that's what the hypostatic union was about, you know, we just talked about. Yes, Tim? Tim recommends reading 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter talks about our glorified body. Okay. That's not what I'm teaching about, really. I mean, I'm teaching about immutability, but it is helpful to understand. And the main point of all this talk was to show that Christ did not change. God did not change at the incarnation. And so in a way, a lot of what I'm doing here in this teaching is I'm not only teaching, I'm defending. I'm trying to defend these doctrines with common objections that you might hear from time to time. Yes? The answer to 20 is inactive. We don't think of God as inactive. You know, some people might think, man, these doctrines are harsh. You're describing an awesome, majestic God. Yes! That's what these lessons are about. I want you to think that God is awesome and majestic in his transcendence that he's huge okay that's that's the purpose but i w don't want you to think he doesn't love you okay there's there's two sides to that yes jan give you an example of what what does that look like that looks like saying Jesus was divested of his divinity when he became a man. When we talk about the doctrine of simplicity, we're talking about the oneness, the unity, that God is made of God's stuff, nothing that is not God. Love is not something outside of God. 
If you say God has parts and pieces, that God's a cocktail, you know, part love, part holiness, you've just split the essence. If you say, anytime people talk in a way that divides the Trinity, okay, so simplicity is the doctrine that helps us understand the unity of and the Trinity of the divine being, the divine nature. So splitting the essence. And people talk this way very casually all the time, you know. Um, I'm not going to give you any examples of things I've heard lately, but... Uh, the tr and, and that's why during that doctrine of simplicity, we talked all about the doctrine of inseparable operations, doctrine of perichoresis, how the works of the Trinity are one, okay? We talked about the doctrine of appropriations, how when Scripture is described to us, add extra as we see it, the, the work of God lands on one of the people, for example. It was Christ who became incarnate. It's the Holy Spirit who's in our hearts. But those are inseparable doc operations of the Trinity. And to speak otherwise is splitting the essence. We're way beyond time. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would uh, bless us from learning more about you and knowing that you are indeed immutable, that uh, we can trust you, we can rely on you to love us and to keep your promises. Uh, let us meditate on that as we come to you in worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.